Hello and welcome back to the Sports Zone. My name is James Sweetenham. We've got one hour of Salford Sporting Chat for you here today. I am absolutely delighted to be joined on the line by Paul Whiteside from the Devil in the Detail podcast. How are you doing, Paul? I'm very good, James. Thank you. Very good. Looking forward to another action-packed show. We've got a lot to talk about, haven't we? So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to getting into uh, the detail of uh, Salford Sport. Yeah, we definitely do, Paul. But first things first, over the past few weeks, our co-host Robert Parkinson hasn't been with us. That's because he's just recently had a child with his wife, Kate, uh, a beautiful girl called Orla, and we're absolutely over the moon for him, aren't we, Paul? Yeah, we certainly are. We certainly are. And, uh, you know, it's great news for Rob. And, uh, you know, we're, we're welcoming him back soon, but he deserves a bit of time off now, doesn't he? You know, sleepless nights with, with little children. I've been there, as Rob has before. So, uh, we know how it works, but, you know, congratulations to him. I think mother and baby are doing really well and, uh, you know, really, really, really happy for Rob and Kate. Yeah, 100%. They're doing really well. We can't wait to have him back on the show, but he's got some much-needed fatherhood time ahead with him. But first things first, we're going to be talking all things in the world of sport in Salford. In the rugby, Salford, well, former Salford boss Ian Watson is taking over at Huddersfield. And Christian Inu has made the Super League dream team. In the world of UFC, Conor McGregor will return on January 23rd in a rematch against Dustin Poirier. In football, Manchester United bag another win against West Bromwich Albion and Manchester City drop into 13th after a 2-0 loss against Tottenham. And in the world of boxing, everybody will be transfixed on the return of Mike Tyson, who's back in the ring against fellow legend Roy Jones Jr. And there's a titanic British heavyweight collision between Daniel Dubois and Joyce we're going to be breaking down all of that over the next hour. But let's talk Rugby League first. After much speculation, Ian Watson has signed a deal with Huddersfield Giants. Paul, how do you feel about this? Yeah, I think it was one of those, uh, probably the worst kept secret in Rugby League. There was a lot of rumours floating about about Watto, Ian Watson sorry, going to, uh, to Huddersfield Giants. Hull were mentioned and things like that. But I think for Salford, now it's just a case of us, of us moving on now, you know... Um, that was announced on, on, on Sky Sports Live, um, I think it was the Friday night game or Thursday night game last week. And um, good publicity for, for, for Huddersfield. A bit of a shame on Salford, really, the way it's uh, the way it's panned out. But I think we've got to look to the future now and and um, look towards next season. And hopefully our new new coach will be, be in position soon. I know the club, we're, uh, we're interviewing candidates this week and they've drawn up a shortlist. So uh, I think that's going to be gathering pace now. And... You know, the sooner that's announced, the better, and he can start putting things into place and having uh, sort of uh, recruitment meetings and things like that. Because there'll be a lot of work to do. Because before we know it, the new season will be starting. So, yep, yeah, Ian Watson has gone to Huddersfield now. So that that chapter in Salford's history is uh, is over, and we're looking forward to a new chapter now with our new coach, whoever that may be. What was it like, Paul? Obviously, you say you knew the news was about to break about Ian Watson going to Huddersfield. But what was it like when you actually saw it? Was it was it a saddening moment? Um, no, for me, not really, no, because he'd gone. So I sort of got over it straight away, really. I was a bit disappointed at first. And to me, it didn't really make any difference where he went as soon as he'd left Salford. You know, for me personally, it was, you know, it was sort of goodbye and, and good luck, to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of supporters are quite bitter about the way things have gone. And, you know, you can you can ask people for their opinions on that. But for me, I wouldn't come on here and, and slag Ian Watson off. He was always okay with me. I, I'm not dead happy about the way things have gone, but that sport, things like this happen in sport. You know, people move on. You know, players move on, coaches move on. We'll, 
you know Salford have took players and coaches off people before in the past, and and that, that's how things that's how things go in sports. The same in football, the same in rugby league. So you just got to wish him all the best now, and you know. I've, I've got every confidence that Huddersfield will meet Salford in the first game of next season. That will probably happen because things like that tend to happen in sport, don't they? So when the fixtures come out, I'm sure we'll be pitted against Huddersfield early doors, if not first game. And it'll be a great contest and it just adds a bit of spice to it. So for us as a club now, we've, we've got to draw a line under that and, uh, and, and look forward to a new chapter. So when Salford do play Huddersfield next, you mentioned, you know, it could happen, you know, next season, you know, maybe even in the first game. Do you think there'll be a lot of needle from the fans directed towards Watson? Or do you think they'll respect him for what he did for the club? I think it's a bit of both, mate, to be honest, from what I've seen. Um, I think there's some supporters that are a bit bitter about the way it went. I mean, we've discussed this on the, on the podcast, me and Rob, and, and we discussed it personally between ourselves as well, how, how we feel about it. And I think it was the way... He said he wasn't going to Hull, and then he didn't. I didn't think he gave a definitive answer in the in the interview after the St. Helens games whether he was staying or not. So there's a bit of a doubt there anyway. So I think you know people are ambitious, aren't they? And and, and coaches in in sport, managers in football, coaches in rugby league, whatever you want to call them. If an opportunity comes along, it's a short career sometimes, and if you if you miss an opportunity, you know you could think at the end of your career, well, you know what might have been sort of thing. So I think sometimes you've got to take opportunities and you've got to trust your instincts, and I think that's what Ian Watson's done. So you can't begrudge him that. I think it was just the way he did a, a season ticket video, you know, advertising for next season. I think some supporters were a bit a bit gutted about that. I think the main thing for me is I think supporters are disappointed because he's done such a good job for us. So I think there's a bit of bitterness there, and there might be a bit of uh, added spice when uh, when we play Huddersfield. But that sport, that's what makes sport so exciting. You know, we've seen it before, haven't we, in, in, in other sports and especially football where managers have gone and they've come back in a real cold and atmosphere. And, you know, as long as it stays respectful and that, which I'm sure it will do, um, I have no problem with that. And I think it'll be a really tasty game when we play Huddersfield. Yeah, you mentioned Watson obviously taking his opportunity at Huddersfield, but there'll be an opportunity vacant at Salford as the search for the new coach has been hotting up with interviews taking place this week. Who would you like to see as the new man in charge? Oh, that's the million-dollar question. Um, to be honest with you, I, I would have liked to see Paul Roller take the job, who was Ian Watson's assistant, but I think Paul Roller's come out this week and ca- categorically said he doesn't want the job. He'd rather stay as a number two to the new guy who comes in, which, for me, is a good thing because that'll give continuity. You know, when Paul came in sort of last summer, I think we there was a real upturn in Salford's form and he's done a terrific job working along with Ian. So uh, that'll be good if Paul stays there. A lot of the rest of the backroom staff seem to be staying. I mean, for me, I'd like to see somebody with ambition, a young coach with ambition, um, maybe a young British coach, somebody who knows the, knows the game over here, knows the leagues. There's a guy at London, Danny Ward, who's done a terrific job down there. Would he uproot himself and his family from down south where he seems to have settled to come back to Salford? I'm not too sure. You've got Stuart Littler, who's at Swinton, who'd, uh, who'd probably love to, to jump up. Um I'm not so sure about this. There's people in Australia. I mean, Sean Wayne has been one that's been mentioned this week on on uh, social media. You know, the former Wigan coach who's the current England boss. Uh, whether he'd take the job on, I'm not too sure. He'd be a major coup for Salford, though. Did a good job at Wigan, very experienced man. So the, the, there's awful lots of people out there. You know, the list is endless, really. But whoever gets the job, you know, I'll be fully behind and I'm sure the supporters will. Of course, you said Paul Rowley isn't keen to take on the job full-time. He'd rather remain as the number two. So whoever you do bring in to take that number one spot, is it important they gel with him? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, it, like, it depends who, who, you, who you get. I suppose 
there might be some coaches out there who, who, who bring their own number two in. That sometimes happens in, in other sports, football, rugby league. You tend to find that sometimes. But, you know, I think it'd be a major positive for the new coach coming in that they've already got somebody like Paul at the club because, you know, he, I wouldn't say he knows the club inside out. He's not been there that long, but he knows a lot of the players. He's worked with that squad before. He'll know the sort of transfer targets we were after, you know, when Ian Watson was there. So, he could be a really good tool to have for the for the for the coach that comes in and and get him off you know to to a, to on the front foot really you know rather than having to to do an awful lot of work behind the scenes he'll he'll be that go between person so I'm pretty sure that any coach that come in you know a guy of Paul Rowley's stance and experience you know it'd, it'd be a massive help and a massive tool for that coach to use. The Super League dream team has been announced and Christian Inu is in it. Is he deserving of his place, Paul? Yeah, I think so. I mean, at the start of the season, Christian um, struggled to get into the side, really. You know, we've got some, some good players, some quality players in the three quarters at Salford. Uh, Ken Seo got quite a bad injury just after the lockdown when we came back against Leeds Rhinos, I think it was. And uh, Christian Inu sort of made that position his own, then coming in on the wing. And since the, the, the season restarted in uh, sort of August, August, September, I think if you look back at his performances and the amount of points he scored and tries he scored, it's been a real talisman, really. You know, he scored, a, he's like the top scorer in the second half of the season and, you know, his point scoring has been tremendous, really. So he has, he, he's done really, really well, scored some really important tries, put in some really important performances, particularly in the cup run, you know, with the matches against Catalans and Warrington, he was, he was instrumental. So I think he, he's done really well to, to, to get into that dream team and, you know, his good work's a, his good work's not gone unnoticed and I know he's in talks with the club or he was in talks with the club about an extended contract because he's off contract next season, I'm pretty certain. So there was rumours about him going to Lee and a few other clubs after him, but I'm pretty sure Salford would, would want to tie him down for next season because, like I said, talisman, points machine, really good goal kicker and he's the sort of player you want in your side because he's very vocal on the pitch as well, good leader and, um, you know, players like that, are uh, they're not ten a penny, you know, players like that are important so I'm, I'm pretty sure Salford would like him to stay. How important is it to keep hold of a player like that? Uh, someone like Kristen, I mean, he's not the youngest. He probably won't mind me saying that. He's he's well in his 30s now, but his experience is vital. You know, he's played on the other side of the, of the world in, in big big matches over there in the NRL. Um, you know, he's, he's such a calm fella as well. You know, you see him on the pitch, he's... Um, you know, he knows how to, to to speak to the players. Last season, Ian Watson used to sort of bring him over to the sideline and give him the instructions, you know, when there was a break in play and, and Chris and then he would be back on there barking out instructions and, and you know, really leading the, the younger players. So uh, they're vitally important people like that, leaders on the pitch, particularly in rugby league. You, you need people like that with that experience and that cool head that can rub off on other people. So, yeah, I'd love him to stay. I, I really would. I mean, I'm not sure how long they'd offer him, maybe another 12 months and, and see how it goes. But I'd love Chris and Inu to stay at Salford. Now, the supported, now, the Salford Supporters Trust are recruiting new members and continue to raise much-needed funds. How important is this, Paul? Oh yeah, the supporters trust do a marvellous job at Salford. They really do, and uh, you know it's this time of year where where, where uh, membership comes up for renewal. It's ten pound to join the supporters trust. You know, with an optional five pound, you can add to the reserve squad as well if if you want to. So it's vital for our club. You know, we've not got a financial backer at Salford, and, and money's the club's not awash with money. So the money that the supporters trust raised last season, <coughs> excuse me, particularly went to to fund the reserve grade, and they've done a tremendous job. I mean. I wouldn't like to say how much they'd raised, but well over like sort of 20 grand, I think it was last year. And, you know, the, the people who, who, who do the supporters trust, like Shirley Bradshaw, Alan Bradshaw, Phil Dunning, James Oskison, to name a few of them. I'll have to write all the names down next week so I can give them all a mention. Um, but they do a tremendous job, you know, raising funds for the club. 
you know, we, we had a, they've had an awful lot of events over the last couple of years, but obviously this season they, they've, they've struggled to do that with, with COVID. So they've been doing all sorts of auctions, you know, selling memorabilia and, you know, all sorts of bits and pieces on on the internet you can get involved with and all sorts of stocking fillers for Christmas and things like that. But, you know, a really community feel they have to, to the club. And I think I think every club should have a have a supporters trust. You know, Swinton Lions have one, our other local neighbours. So I think it's very, very important. So if you can get involved with it, with the trust, you know, you'll follow them on, on excuse me, online, on Twitter, get involved in, and, and join, you know, sign up your membership. Yeah, talking Swinton Lions there. They've announced the new chairman, haven't they? Yeah, they certainly have. That was news to me today. I, I saw that today. I mean, we've not spoke much about Swinton over the last couple of months because their season obviously got cancelled and they didn't play their, their season. It was a sort of null and void to their waiting to come back in 2021. But I've just seen the news today that they've continued the process of revamping their off-field structure with the appointment of Stuart Fletcher as their new club chairman. I don't know Stuart Fletcher personally, but I believe from what I've heard, he's, he's been a supporter of the club for years and a, and a benefactor of the club, someone who sponsors them as well and uh, you know, puts on an awful lot of hard work and time into that, into Swinton Lions, into that club. So uh, we can only wish, wish Stuart all the best. And from what I've seen online from some of the posts, he's getting some great messages there. And I think the, the main thing with Stuart is he's a supporter. He's supported them for such a long time, you know, since he was a, a lad. So uh, he'll know the club inside out. And I think when you've got people like that running your club, I know Steve Wilde does a, does a great job at Swinton as well as the rest of the board they've got there. They're all supporters and they're all people who are the lifeblood of that club who've been there for such a long time and you know watch them through thick and thin so I'm uh, I'm really hoping they do well next season and they can get you know a full season under the belts after this after this lockdown and uh, you know Stuart Little is a, a good coach as well and you know we, we always like to wish our neighbours Swinton all the best. And finally this Friday sees the climax of the Super League season when current champions St Helens take on Wigan in a ding-dong derby battle royal. Paul are you excited for this one? Yeah, it's it's a funny one, really. You know, Friday night grand final. The grand final's normally Saturday tea time at Old Trafford. This time it's Friday night at the, the KCOM Stadium in Hull. So a bit of a trek for, <laughs> for Wigan and St. Helens. But you know, a grand final's a grand final. It's going to be different. There's going to be no attendance there, so it's a, it's an empty stadium. But at the end of the day, no matter who's at the ground or where the, where the match is played, the winners of that game get the grand final rings, don't they? And the grand final trophy. So uh, you know, and you're the champions of, of this country of the, of the Super League. So it's going to be a great game. You know, two. Two of the oldest rivals in, in rugby leagues, St. Helens and Wigan, you know, they've got a real bit of rivalry over the years. Been some tremendous matches over over the years, especially in, in my lifetime that I've watched. It, you know that, you know, the, particularly the Good Friday clashes, you know, the traditional Easter derby match. So uh, it's going to be a great game. Some great players, some players bowing out as well. The likes of Sean O'Loughlin, who's who's retiring. So it's going to be a fantastic match that on on, on Friday night. And, you know, Jackson Ace is there at Wigan now. Jake Bibby as well, who played at Salford in the grand final for us last year. They'll be wanting to go one better this season and, and lift the trophy for Wigan. So I'd like to see that. I think I'd, I'd, I'd probably have my Wigan hat on on, on Friday night. But there's you know, some terrific players at St. Helens as well, like T.O. Farge, ex-Salford player. So it's going to be a really, really good game. And, you know, if you ask, you're probably, you're probably going to ask me now if you think I'm going to win, which I'm sure will be the next question. I don't know. I think it's a real 50-50 encounter, this one. I think, you know, there's two, two fantastic sides there. And for me, the best two sides in the competition have made it to the grand final. I think deservedly so. I'll tell you what, Paul, you took the words right out of my mouth. That was, of <laughs> course, going to be my next question. So I'll come up with a new one. And Wigan beat Hull in their semi-final. St. Yep. Helens beat Catalan. Who overall has had the tougher journey towards this final? Well, it's been a strange season. Um, like It's not been... You know, it's not been like a fair season in certain ways that they've not all played 
well, I won't say fair, perhaps, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not been a normal season because not everybody's played the same amount of games. You know, Catalan Dragons played about five or six games less than some of the other clubs, so it was done on a percentage thing in the end. But I think if you take the season on a whole, I think St. Helens and Wigan have been the best two sides. I think St. Helens had a bit of a tricky start to the season, you know, lost a couple of games early doors and then came back since the lockdown when they've come back in August since the season started. They've been absolutely on fire, really. I think Wigan's one of the only sides who's beaten them, so... Uh, Wigan have had it tough as well, but they've, they've both had a tough run, really. I think the semi-finals, I'm not too sure. Catalans and Hull, I mean, you'd probably say Catalans, you know, probably had a better season than Hull. They finished above them, but both Wigan and Saints were fantastic in the semi-finals. And neither side that they played against, Hull didn't score a try and Catalans didn't score a try. They kept both sides to two points. So Wigan and Saints did an absolute sterling job on both those two teams. And no, I, I'll, I'll. I'll be brave now and I'll back Wigan, but I think it'll be a really, really close game and I won't be surprised if it went to extra time and was a golden point match. Brave man, Paul, making that official pick. You're <laughs> saying that Wigan win the Super League final and I'm sure everybody will be keen to listen in next week for you to boast about the correct prediction or uh, to uh, say why it all went wrong for Wigan. One last question for you, Paul. You mentioned uh, a player retiring at the, after the Super League final. Can you have a bigger stage to play your final game? Um, as I said before, it'd be difficult, you know, without the crowd being there. But I suppose as a professional player, and, and Sean O'Loughlin's one of those players who, who's retiring, um, it's, you're the ultimate professional. I mean, Sean is, and, and it's it's a big stage to go out on. He's done everything at Wigan. He's won trophies galore, won more or less everything you can, you can win. So to go out in a grand final, I think, for me, or, or a Challenge Cup final. The grand final's at the end of the season, so obviously that's 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 going to be the game you go out with. I think that's the way you'd, you'd want to go out, you know, for an international player like that. You want to finish your, your, your career on a high, don't you? So they'll be looking forward to that. He's not played much Sean O'Loughlin over the last few years with, with injuries. We can tend to use him really sparingly now off the bench and probably only plays sort of nine games a season, something like that, for the last couple of years. But he's about 37, 38 now, very similar age to me. So... I mean, I, I couldn't see myself playing Super League every week, so I don't know how he does it, but <laughs> he must have a fantastic body, gets himself in fantastic condition. So, wish him all the best. Been a, been a top player, and uh, you know, if my prediction comes true, he'll be smiling on uh, on Friday night with the grand final uh, trophy. He absolutely will. We can't wait till next week to find out if you got this one right. That's it in terms of our rugby league talk for this week. But now we're moving on to the world of UFC. Yeah, James, we've got plenty in the UFC world this week. Conor McGregor will officially be making his return to the Octagon on January the 23rd. How much has the sport missed him, James? It's missed him a lot, Paul. Over the past few years, Conor McGregor's appearances in the Octagon have been few and far between. I'm sure many people remember a few years back when he fought Floyd Mayover. That was, that was a big turning point in Conor McGregor's career because in the UFC before that, he used to be fighting regularly. He was one of the most active fighters on the roster. And it's rare you see somebody who makes that much money fighting so regularly. But after the Mayweather fight, he took a lot of time out. He came back, fought Khabib and Magomedov, got beat comprehensively. And then took you know a couple of years out before he returned against Donald Cowboy Cerrone. And that fight lasted less than a round. It'll be you know just over a year post that fight. And he'll be getting back in the octagon against Dustin Poirier. I think the wood of the UFC... We'll always carry on regardless of whether Conor McGregor is a part of it or he isn't. But he's still the biggest name and he still draws eyeballs. Every time he fights, this sport gains more attention 
and develops more fans. So it's important that he continues to fight. He continues to grow those crowds, gains that crossover appeal, and more and more people ultimately watch the sport. So to answer your question, it's massive for the world of UFC that he's returning. What can you tell us about his opponent this time round? He's taken on Dustin Poirier, and the pair of them fought... You know, over five years ago, Conor McGregor won the first fight relatively comfortably. It finished inside the first round. It was back when Conor McGregor was fighting at featherweight and he was blowing for everyone. And Dustin Poirier was just the name on that list of people he fought in the lead up to his world title fight. So the battle before, Conor McGregor came out the victor, which is why it's an interesting one, because obviously... McGregor won it so comfortably first time around, and I think a lot of people are going to be wondering what can Justin Poirier do differently. Do you think this fight's going to go any different to the first one? It's difficult to say because the first fight was so comprehensive, and as people always say in fight sports, nothing really changes between the first and the second fight. The person who won the first one tends to come back and win the second and win the second as well, but. Conor McGregor has spent ex- extensive periods of time outside of the octagon. He hasn't been active. Dustin Poirier has, and he's improved immensely since the first fight. Dustin Poirier was a, you know, a top 10 man, but never really looked like fighting for a belt. Since that fight with Conor McGregor, he's won lots of big fights. He's fought for a world title himself and even rocked Khabib Nurmagomedov and nearly won the belt that night. He's beaten big names like Justin Gaethje, big names like Eddie Alvarez, and he's just got better and better and better and better. The man Conor McGregor fought the first time round is not the man who he's been getting going to get back in the cage with this time round. Poirier is far better than he was prior, which means he's got far more chance. Does that mean I picked Dustin Poirier to win this fight? Probably not. Poirier is one of the nicest guys in the sport. He does so much for charity and he deserves a big win like this. However, I think stylistically Conor McGregor is a bit of a nightmare for him. I think he's a far better striker. That's what Dustin Poirier does best. He can sometimes mix his wrestling in to beat people who have a striking level of the same sort of calibre. Conor McGregor is so far ahead of him in the striking part of this sport that I feel he that makes him a big favourite. Something that will benefit him, though, this time round is that everybody seems to lose before they get in there with Conor McGregor. But Dustin Poirier's already been through that. He's already been through the mentalness of a Conor McGregor fight week. He's already been through the mind game, so he knows what's ahead of him. He knows what to experience, and he'll be better prepared this time around. And I think the fact that there won't be a screaming crowd in there will benefit him greatly. Is there a chance this could be for a vacant world title? Yeah, it, it could well be, Paul. Uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov retired after his last fight. That means there's a vacancy for the belt. Conor McGregor and Justin Poirier are more than worthy to fight for that. Conor McGregor simply because he's the biggest star in the sport. And Justin Poirier because he's won so many fights. And he's he's that nearly man of the sport. He's, you know, if, if you're a boxing fan, he's like, you know, that Martin Murray or, you know, George Groves before he won a world title. He deserves the belt. And I think a lot of people wouldn't begrudge him getting that chance to fight for one. So I see this fight. As long as Khabib Nurmagomedov doesn't come back, because there's still a chance of that, Dana White is still desperately trying to get him to return to the sport. If not, I think it'll be for a vacant title. UFC <coughs> took place in Vegas on Saturday night and the flyweight champion retained his belt. Was it an impressive de- defence? It was. Davidson Figueiredo won the belt last time out against Jose Benavidez. And a lot of people viewed that as a fight that Figueiredo should have won because Jose Benavidez, although being a big name, He's past his best. This time round, Figueroa was taking on a youthful character. 
and one who should have given him a very close fight in Alex Perez, but it wasn't to be. Perez had a couple of decent moments with some good body kicks, but Figueiredo ultimately was all over him. He showed far better jiu-jitsu and finished him with a crushing guillotine to announce himself as, for me, one of the very best pound-for-pound fighters in this sport now. And there's been many an occasion in the flyweight division where, you know, people like Demetrius Johnson haven't excited us. They've taken easy fights. They've one on points. It's rare people hit extremely hard in that weight division. And Figueredo does. He can knock people out, and hopefully that'll get people excited about the flyweight division, Paul. Which, you know, in the world of boxing, we talk about it so regularly. The likes of Chocolatito, Roman Gonzalez, and, you know, Juan Estrada are celebrated so highly for what they've done. So it shows the little lads in the sport can gain some uh, mainstream following, and we hope that the flyweight division in the UFC can do that as well. Yeah, certainly he will fight again in underneath a month in the quickest back-to-back defence for a UFC champion. How big a statement is that, you know, less than a month? It, it's, it's humongous, Paul. I mean, just the way you said month there for emphasis. I mean, it, it's just it's just huge. I mean, we just don't see this, do we? I mean, in the world of boxing and UFC, really, people, champions will fight, you know, you know, once or twice a year if you're lucky. So the fact that he's defending his belt again in in just 21 days is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, I'm not sure many of us can can believe that this fight is going ahead. Him and his opponent, Brandon Moreno, both fought on the same bill. They both won. They both came out unscathed and just thought, you know, we'll fight again in a month's time. Why not? And I think everybody's looking forward to this one. And if you want to become a star in the world of UFC, you need to be making these sort of statements. You need to be doing that thing which gets fans talking. And the fact that somebody's fight, a champion is fighting... And then 21 days later, defending that belt. I think it makes a huge statement. It shows what he means in this spot. It shows he means he wants to leave a legacy. It shows that he's up for fighting anytime, anywhere. And I think this is a huge statement from Figueiredo. Yeah, certainly. In the co-main event, the women's flyweight champion also defended her belt. Yeah, she did. Valentina Shevchenko defended her belt against Jennifer Meyer. And she's just a cut above everybody in the flyweight division. I think the only challenges for her are going to come if she steps up and fights uh, Amanda Nunes. Of course, she's already fought her last time round. Amanda Nunes won, but a lot of people felt that was a controversial decision. So I think the only way Valentina Shevchenko can get people going is if she steps up a division and tries to become a two-weight world champion. One of UFC's biggest characters missed weight for this build. Is that acceptable, James? It isn't, Paul, and we talk about it so regularly in boxing when fighters miss weight. We're really disappointed in them, and we're really disappointed in Mike Perry this week, who failed to make weight. He missed by four and a half pounds, and I think which has wound people up even more, and even more so than the fact that he just missed weight, was his nonchalant attitude towards it. You know, he was dancing on stage, he was telling people, I told you I was going to miss weight. It seemed like there was never much of an attempt to make it in the first place, so it was extremely unprofessional. He lost 30% of his purse. And ultimately lost the fight. And, I mean, to me, that just shows a lot of unprofessionalism and a hell of a lack of respect to his opponent and the UFC as well. And to his supporters as well, you would say there, James. A hundred percent. People, you know, obviously there's no fans at the moment, but people, you know, get behind these fighters. They desperately wanted to see him win. And if there was crowd at the arenas, you know, people would have spent their hard-earned money to watch him fight, and, you know, it doesn't really mean anything after he misses weight. £4.5 as well, Paul, I mean, that's absolutely huge. Yeah, it certainly is, it certainly is. It frustrates us every time, doesn't it, with, with boxers, like you said there. It, it can be an attitude thing sometimes, and I don't think an attitude is something you can turn on and off like a tap, is it? So, very, very disappointing news, that. 
Yeah, I 100% agree with you there, Rob. I mean, we see so many fighters. I mean, Javante Davis, just to pick one in the world of boxing, somebody who has immense talent but doesn't pick his, uh, doesn't make particularly good career choices. He regularly misses weight. And after every fight, we're frustrated because, you know, if anything, as big as it, as disrespectful it is to the, to the promotion and the fighters, it's just not fair. I mean, it's borderline cheating, isn't it? Because you're coming in with such a big weight advantage. I think you're also not being fair to yourself, are you? You've got to be, you know, you've got to be tuned up when you're an athlete, haven't you? So, uh, so yeah, very disappointing that this week. Lastly, on Saturday, there's a big collision between heavyweights Derek Lewis and Curtis Bladers. Who wins this one, James? I mean, it's a good one, Paul. It's a big heavyweight collision. I mean, Stipe Miocic, the reigning and defending UFC heavyweight world champion, has a lack of options at heavyweight. I mean, he's got a rematch probably with Francis Ngannou, maybe in the future. John Jones has said many a time that he wants to fight at heavyweight, the, the supposed greatest of all time. So that'd be a good one. But the next person in line will be the winner of this one between Curtis Blades and Derek Lewis. Lewis hits like an absolute monster. And if he touched Blades on the chin, it will all be over. He's a big character himself, but I'm going with Curtis Blades on this one. I think his wrestling will be far superior. I think he'll try and avoid that big right hand of Derek Lewis. I think he'll take him down to the ground, and I think he'll win by a late stoppage. But anyway, moving on to the world of football, and Manchester United returned to winning ways against West Bromwich Albion by a goal to nil. Fernandez bagging a penalty. Manchester United, 10th place in the table, officially in the top half. And that's got to be a sigh of relief to Manchester United fans who, let's face it, were beginning to panic about how their season was going. Yeah, certainly. There certainly was. We spoke about it last week. I mean, the build-up to that game against West Brom and, you know, newly promoted side who are not doing too well at the moment. So there's an awful lot of pressure on Oli Solskjaer and his men to, to win that game. You know, if they'd have stuttered there and got a point or, or heaven forbid, a defeat, that would have been a real massive sort of spanner in the works this season. So not the most impressive performance, but I think at the moment, you know, if you asked Oli Solskjaer, I think it's all about getting the three points. And I think... He'll be concerned about the way they got the three points, but at the moment, you just want to get some wins under your belt, don't you? So uh, a good result, and uh, like you said, 10th place. Not where they want to be, but you're in the top half, and you're, the only way is up. Yeah, a million percent. And as they say in football, losing can become a habit. So I think Manchester United will be extremely happy that they've broken that. And you mentioned that the performance wasn't a standout one, but do you think they'll just be over the moon to get a win? Yeah, I think, like you said there, it's the same in Rugby League. Me and Rob talk about this all the time on the podcast about confidence, where it goes, where it comes from, getting on winning runs and, and losing. And, and as you said, winning can become a habit. But more importantly, sometimes losing can become a habit. So once you've broken that and they've had a few sort of in and out results of, of, of late Manchester United, you know, a, a decent win, a win's a win, as they say. You get your three points and, and it's all about building on that now. So I think Solskjaer will be would be delighted to get the result, but concerned about the performance, and they've got plenty to work on on the training ground. And over the next couple of weeks, they've got they've got chances now, haven't they, in the Champions League and you know some some league games at home as well, and games they're expected to to, to win. So they'll be looking at putting a bit of momentum together now and uh, and getting results. Yeah, they most certainly will be. And their appearance in the Champions League will take place midweek as they collide with Istanbul. They didn't do so well in that match last time round, but they're at home. For this game, and you think they'll be looking to get a win? Yeah, certainly, especially at home. It's a difficult place to go, isn't it? Away from home to Istanbul, as, as we've seen with other clubs in the past. Um, you know, Manchester United at the moment, it's the same for everybody. There's no crowds there, is there? So it's going to be, it must be difficult to, to, to fire yourself up. But you no know, home comforts and things like that. So 
we've got to be looking at getting a result in this game, haven't we? We're going to have any chance of qualifying as, as we go through this tournament. So, uh, so I think you know they'll be buoyed by the game on on Saturday, and they'll be looking to you know to improve again and uh, and, and take another three points. Istanbul won their last game, and going into that, they would have been humongous underdogs. They wouldn't have been expected to beat Manchester United. So do you think this time going to the Theatre of Dreams, they'll have even more motivation to get a win? Yeah, I think so. I think they'll have that belief now. I think once you've you, you've beaten a team, once you, you've got that confidence and that belief, then haven't you? So it's up to Manchester United to to get up for this game. And um, you know, sometimes it's difficult when you're playing sides that you know you are you are expected to beat. You know, the, the pressure's on you. You know, you're the home side. They they can come and sort of the shackles are off for them really. They can come and play their game, and no one expects them to win anyway. So sometimes when you are the favourite and all the onus is on you, you can feel that pressure a bit more. And I think that tends to happen to I think that's happening to Manchester City at the moment. You know we'll talk about them sort of later on, but that happens to Manchester United now. I think particularly since Alex Ferguson's left that. I mean, no, it's a while ago now, but that sort of belief that they used to have seems to have seems to have eroded really now, and that sort of sense of invincibility, you know, it doesn't seem to be there anymore. And I think that's something that they need to try and try and build back there, especially at Old Trafford. You know, make that ground a fortress, and particularly when crowds come back, that's what they'll be looking at trying to do. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, Manchester United have been struggling so much at the moment, and they've got a collision with Southampton. They'll be going away to there. Never the easiest place to go. And Southampton aside, that have been doing incredibly well this season. They're in fifth place. And, you know, they'll be expecting to beat Manchester United at the moment in the form they're on. They're playing some excellent football, aren't they, at the moment? There's some surprise, sort of surprise teams up there in the top half of the Premiership at the moment. I suppose you probably can't say that about Leicester City. I mean, Leicester City have won the, the Championship and been pretty good over the last couple of seasons. So I'll probably do them a disservice by saying that. But Southampton are not one of the, the standout sides that we normally expect to be up there. But they're playing some excellent football this season. Like you said, it's always a difficult place to go on the South Coast. But they'll be buoyed by you know, their, their start to the season and the, and the form that they're on. And especially looking at Manchester United, they, they don't look... Um, they don't look as solid at the moment, United. They look like they can concede goals. So Southampton will fancy that. But that's another tough test for Manchester United. I mean, it's a difficult game, really, because Manchester United this season have played well against some of the bigger teams. You know, they'd had a good result at Chelsea. Of course, they beat Paris Saint-Germain. But they've been dropping results against, you know, the likes of Crystal Palace, you know, where they should be winning. What category does Southampton fall in? Is this a game Manchester United are going to be motivated for because of how well Southampton are doing this season? Or are they going to see it as a game that they should be winning and therefore, you know, maybe underestimate Southampton? I'd say it's a similar sort of category to the game. <clears throat> Excuse me, losing my voice. Similar sort of category of the game they played against Everton at Goodison Park a number of weeks ago. Um, Everton made a really good start to the season, and Manchester United went there. And for me, they put the foot down and they got a really good result. I think it was three-one. It was so I can see that game this Saturday going that sort of way. You know, if Manchester United turn on the style. They can, they can, they can do a number on Southampton. That's no disrespect to Southampton, but I think sometimes in Manchester United, in particular some of the players, it seems like an attitude thing with me. They've, they've got to go there. And you can't expect teams to just turn over for you because the Premier League now is a very, very competitive league. I mean, you've got to work hard for wherever you go for, for the result. Um, so they go there and, and, and switched on, play to the potential and, and with the right attitude. There's no, there's no reason why they can't win that game. But you know that attitude, bottling that attitude and that desire and work ethic you know it's, it's the million dollar question if, if managers could bottle that it'd be absolutely priceless so uh, you know they, they've got a they've got a game on this week now two two tough games but two games you'd expect to win Istanbul and Southampton definitely 100% and another side who've been struggling this season are your team Manchester City 
we mentioned last week we thought they were the underdogs going into that clash with Tottenham and we were proved right as Tottenham defeated them 2-0. They've got to be absolutely gutted with that Manchester City, haven't they? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can, you can talk all you want and say Tottenham are doing very well at the top of the table and are they a contender for the title? You'd probably have to say at this stage in the season, yeah, they are. You know, they, they look pretty good to me. They're scoring goals for fun. They've got some fantastic players. But Manchester City, you know, for the money that they spend at Manchester City and the squad that they've got, they seem to be flattering to deceive at the moment. I mean, what are the 13th in the table? Really sort of in and out start to the season. They've not really thrown a marker down and, and, and sort of said they're going to be contenders this season at the moment. They look like a mid-table sort of mediocrity so if you're a Manchester City supporter I think you'd be pretty worried I know you get those supporters that say well we're going to go for the Champions League this season I don't think you can pick and choose what trophy you're going to go for you've got to make sure you're switched on every week because you can't turn form on and off like a tap and at the moment Manchester City's form is very very average What I'm about to pose, Paul, is quite, quite an interesting point, really, that's just sprung to mind. Because Manchester are currently in 10th, and everybody talks about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, his job being you know, on the chopping block, really. Nobody ever mentions that in regards to Pep Guardiola, because it seems almost inconceivable that a man who did so well at Barcelona and so well at Bayern Munich and has won the Premier League with Manchester City could possibly be sacked. But the way he's been, you know, with the way Manchester City have been playing this season, with them currently being in 13th, do you think there's a possibility that fans could begin to turn on Pep? It's a difficult question, that, because I suppose with Oli Solskjaer, he's, he's not got that legacy as a manager at Manchester United. He has as a player, but as a manager, he, he hasn't really. But when with, with Pep, he's won trophies at Manchester City, haven't they? So that, that sort of sticks in people's memory banks and, you know, his terrific job he did at Barcelona, a great job at Bayern Munich, but... All these clubs, he's had plenty of money to spend, hasn't he? So I'm not doubting Pompey, he's a, he's a poor manager. But, um, you know, fans fans can become fickle sometimes, can't they? And when they see the amount of money that Manchester City is spending, the talent they've got and the resources they've got in the squad, they're massively underachieving for me. I mean, I'm no massive football expert these days by a long chalk, but, you know, you can see when a side's, you know, got, got those resources there and got those players in. And you can, you can you can see so there's something not quite right at the moment. I'm not too sure what it is at Manchester City. I, mean, I can't quite pinpoint it, but they are underachieving. And if they're going to challenge for that Premier League title this season, that they need to get on a winning sort of run because they are going to drift 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 away at the moment. I mean, I'm not too sure any points they are behind Tottenham. It's seven or eight, something like that, maybe more. So um, they need to start winning, otherwise they're going to fall by the wayside. And the games get even tougher this week. They've got to go to Olympiacos. Greece never an easy place to go. Do you think they'll lose this one, Paul? Um, well, as you say, I'm a Manchester City supporter, aren't I? <laughs> even though I'm a bit of an armchair one these days. <laughs> I'd probably have to go with the Manchester City winning that game. But like you said, it's a tough place to go. This is when you start to find out you know, your squad gets tested, doesn't it? You're playing two games a week, you know, particularly travelling away in Europe as well. So uh, that, that's, a, that's a tough place to go over to Greece. So I'm expecting them to get a result in that game. I think they'd be very disappointed if they were to lose it. I mean, would Pep take a draw? Probably would at this moment in time, but I'm expecting them to go over there and bounce back. And lastly, in the Premier League, they're taking on Burnley, and this is a game, you know, you'll be hoping for them to win and get back on winning ways. I'd say so, yeah. I mean, Burnley have been pretty poor this season, haven't they? They're down there, sort of the bottom end of the table, and they're struggling, so 
you would expect to get a result from this game. And historically, Manchester City have done pretty well against Burnley, so um, I'm expecting a win against Burnley on Saturday. Lastly, on Salford, they got a big win against Bradford by winning by three goals to nil, and they're playing really well at the moment. They've got games coming up this week against Morecambe, and a big one away at Newport in the FA Cup. And I think all of us as Salford fans are hoping they can go on a bit of a run in the Cup. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, they've got a big game in the league as well. Um, and they're doing very well in the league at the moment. They've, they've not really been shouting from the rooftops, but they've slowly crept up there into the playoff places. And they're, they're sitting quite pretty at the moment and playing some good football. Excellent result, like you said, against Bradford City. Were no, no mug of a team, are they, Bradford? So, really good result, that. Um, big game in the, in, the, in the league this week, as we've said. And then the FA Cup, Newport will be a tough game, but you can get through that one. You're into the, the third round then, aren't you? And, you know, there's a lot of whispers about crowds coming back, you know, soon. We don't know when that's going to be, but, you know, if they can get into that third round and put themselves in the mix there, you've got the chance of, of drawing somebody really big away from home or getting a really big tie down there at Moore Lane. So, exciting what, you know, players and supporters want to be involved in that big third round. I mean, the draw for that is amazing. It When all those big guns come in and, the, the minnows are, are waiting for it to see which team they get drawn out of the of the bag to. So, uh, Salford have got some exciting times coming up. And like I said, doing very well in the league. And, and you know, they could be there or there about some promotion at the end of the season. But a big week with the league and cup. 100%. And this time next week, we can't wait to break down how Salford got on in the cup and how Manchester United and Manchester City got on in the Champions League. But now we've got to talk boxing. And it's the biggest story in the world of sport this week, Paul. One of the greatest fighters to have ever laced up the gloves. Mike Tyson takes on fellow legend Roy Jones Jr. at the Staples Centre in LA. And you can word it however you like. I mean, a lot of people think that these two men shouldn't be getting in the ring together. They're too old for it. But I think all of us are watching with intrigue for two of the best ever to fight once more. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you can say that, can't you, about be, being too old. But if you only look at Bernard Hopkins, how, how long did he fight for? So I think if you look after your body and you know, why not? Why not? And I think it'd be a, it'd be a great fight, and you, you've nailed it there with, with Mike Tyson, probably one of the, the best fighters ever to, to step in the ring. And I think we were talking about this the other week. I mean, Mike Tyson probably one of the hardest people in his prime on the, on the planet, probably one of the toughest men on the planet. He probably still is. I mean, there's not many people out there who, who could probably challenge Mike Tyson. So, Roy Jones Jr. as well, we, we know he's been a fantastic fighter, and he's probably been a bit more active over the last sort of decade um, with, with his fight, if you look look over his record, so for me, has he got a slight advantage? Yeah, possibly, possibly. But Mike Tyson's, you know, he's, he's a he's a freak of boxing, isn't he? Really, and the power that he possesses, and has he still got it? We'll have to wait and see. But it promises to be a, a fantastic fight, and I know a few people said it'd be like an exhibition fight. I don't think so. When you see these two in the ring, I don't think there'll be any exhibition about this. Both those men will want to win, and they'll both want to win emphatically. Now, when you were younger, Paul, and you were watching these two men in the peak of the powers, whose career were you more invested in, and who had the better one? Um, I think it's a difficult question. I think you'd probably go with Mike Tyson, wouldn't you, just because of the the name of Mike Tyson and the way he sort of stormed in sort of the mid to late eighties, wasn't it? When Mike Tyson was a bit, I was a bit too young to remember his early days, but you know, his particular fights in the in the nineties, I, I saw most of them and was very impressed with him. But when you watch the, the the footage of him when he first came along, you know that head movement that he's got uh, and the, the power and the, the way he moves. You know, for for a bloke who's not very tall, I mean, he's he's knocked some very big men out with one punches, hasn't he? And that one punch power that he possesses, I mean, 
they've not seen many heavyweights like that for a long time, so uh, he's very exciting to watch. But Roy Jones Jr. as well has been in some tremendous fights. You know, he, he's never ducked anybody. Been in some really tough fights over the years. So, you know, two two men that are absolute legends of the sport, aren't they? And I think to see them back in the ring again is, uh, you know, every fight fan's dream, isn't it, to see people like this come back together? It absolutely is, Paul. And as, you know, as wrong as it is on some levels, I can't wait to watch this one. I'm going to be doing the night shift, as I'm sure you will be, to watch two of the best ever collide again. In the co-main event, we have Jake Paul versus Nate Robinson. Jake Paul is a YouTube star with 18 million subscribers. Nate Robinson is a former basketball player in the NBA, a slam dunk champion. And something that I want to ask you, Paul, we've got these YouTubers who all seem to be fighting each other. And, you know, it's a bit of fun, a bit of a laugh. We've got, you know, some people argue that, you know, they don't deserve the place here, you know, on the big stage. Will they deserve it more? And I know this this opponent of the YouTuber isn't a boxer in his own right. He's a basketball player. But would it be a big statement if a YouTuber can beat a professional athlete in a boxing ring? Um, yeah, I suppose it would. I suppose it would. I mean, if you're a professional athlete, you, you're at a level, aren't you, of, of fitness and, <clears throat> and mentality in, in your own sport. But boxing is different. I think people have tried it before. You know, Freddie Flintoff in this country went doing boxing, didn't he? And you've had other people. You've had people move to successful as well. Quite a few footballers have gone to this country, particularly Curtis Woodhouse and one or two others who've done very well at boxing. And, you know, hats off, they've gone professional and done it. But, you know, for a basketball player to, to move over to, to boxing, and I don't know how experienced this guy is, it might be a difficult move for him. So this, this YouTuber, I don't know a lot about him, but he might have boxed all his life. He, he could be pretty good. He could have grown up in gyms. He could be a really tough guy. So, you know, it, it makes it exciting. It really does. I mean, when people say they don't deserve to be on that stage, I don't know. I think if you work hard and, you, and you've got the, the following and, and things like that and you, you, you're bringing excitement to the table, you know, sport these days, particularly boxing and, and things like that, it's, it's the entertainment business, isn't it? People want to see it. You know, we see it over here. Like I said, Eddie they do a fantastic job, you know, promoting the fights and that. And, you know, if people want to see it, it's going to be entertaining. You know, you can't argue with the general public, can you? They'll they'll tell you what's exciting and what they want to see. They will, Paul, and we're all looking forward to this build. But there's one that's, well, not quite as big, but I think all the hardcore fans are really looking forward to it and are hoping it'll have a bit of crossover appeal as well. There's a titanic collision between two of the best upcoming prospects in the world of heavyweight boxing. Is Daniel Dubois. A fearsome puncher, only 21 years of age, somebody who's touting to be the world champion, who's going to take over the mantle from the likes of Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua, collides with Joe Joyce, an Olympic silver medalist, somebody with a monster engine, somebody who can hit very hard in his own right. It's one we're all looking forward to, Paul. And who are you leaning towards to win this one? Um, probably just, I think it's going to be close. It's a difficult one, this one, to predict. If I had to be a betting man, you know, you've you heard my prediction in the rugby league. I've just <laughs> given you on there, so I'll probably end up with uh, egg on my face here. Now, I'd probably have to go with Daniel Dubois. I think, I think his power and in, in his youthfulness and his sort of explosiveness, I think he might just edge this one. But Joe Joyce, like you said, terrific engine, very very tough, very very tough customer. He's not going to go down without putting up a massive fight. So this one could go either way. But if if I had to put if I had a tenner and I had to put a tenner on, I'd go with Daniel Dubois just just for, just for for the youth on his side and and just that punch power. I think I think that punch power would just edge it for him. 
Yeah, you're picking Daniel Dubois, and some of the bookmakers, with Joe just being found as wide as a four to one favourite, do you think people are writing him off far too easily, Paul? I mean, I mean, in addition to that, I mean, one of the big advantages Joe just has in this fight is his experience, the fact that he did so much as an amateur, and the fact that he beat Brian Jennings as a pro, somebody who you know has been in and around world level. Could it be too soon for Daniel Dubois? Could be. It could be. Yeah, that that experience sometimes can can be massive in in these sort of fights, can't it? You can you can be too soon. You can be undercooked. So we'll we'll, we'll have to wait and see on that one. But as you said, there, uh, Joe Joyce has had a terrific amateur career. You know, boxing at the uh, you know as, as, a, as an athlete and Olympian as well. So it's um, you know that that experience, that amateur experience, sometimes you know that can that can come back to be a massive tool for you. You know, in this sort of in this sort of fight, you know, you might need that. You might need all those those bits and pieces you picked up as an amateur. You could need them. There could be a situation come this weekend that you'll need that that experience, that knowledge in this fight. So I don't think you can write him off. I think the bookmakers there are maybe four to one. I think that's those are big odds. Those. I mean, I wouldn't have gone that distance. I'm, when I was saying before, I thought Daniel Dubois. That that was just an edge. I didn't think four to one. I think four to one's probably a bit disrespectful to to Joyce. So. Uh, so, yeah, I think it'd be a lot closer than that. In another heavyweight news, two men made a name for themselves on Saturday night. And the first one was Alan the Savage Babbage. He bulldozed past Tom Little in three rounds. And we predicted this one was going to be a good contest, Paul. And it was. The two men went to war. You know, some people were referring it to being like two bouncers fighting, which is ironic because, you know, Babbage was a bouncer out in Croatia. But he's got an entertaining start. And I think he'll be somebody that's going to entertain us for a long time to come. Yeah, he's a character. He certainly is a character, and you know, just his nickname there, the, the the savage. I mean, we was looking forward to this one, weren't we? We thought it'd be explosive, and yeah, you, you can say yeah, they look like two bouncers, but I think there was some quality in there. There was some some decent boxing. You know, Tom Little is is uh, as brave as they come, isn't he? And, uh, you know, for a decent fight like that, you need two decent fighters and, and, and a decent opponent. I think he got that in Tom Little. So, you know, three rounds he got through there pretty pretty quickly and very explosively. But like you said. He's a big guy, he, you know. He carries that power, and you need those sort of characters around the, you know, the domestic scene. And I think he's he's got some got some skills there, and I think he, you know, he he, he shock a few people. I think he'll shock a few people on his journey. And looking forward to seeing him in action again. And after the bout, Tom Little announced his retirement from the sport of boxing. His record stands at ten and nine, but I think a lot of people will see him as a lot better than that record. Those losses coming against great names, the likes of you know Philip Hergovic, Daniel Dubois, David Price, you know Alan Babich. He's somebody who, although didn't get the big wins and could have got more so if he'd have fought at domestic level and got more opportunity there and not had to fight all the prospects coming through. I think everybody can only respect the fact that Tom Little was a man who was willing to get in the ring with everybody. He didn't duck a single opponent, and he was a massive character as well. So I think the sport of boxing is going to miss him. Yeah, it certainly is. I, I would never like to disrespect anybody in boxing, but I think sometimes if you go down the records, you can see people with really good records, you know, with some twenty odd wins and maybe one or two losses. But they've never really tested themselves. They've never really gone up to that European sort of world level. They've been at domestic level and had a really good career, which is great. But then you get people like Tom Little. You know, gatekeepers they call them, don't they? For, for you know, for bigger things, and yeah, you're standing in there and fighting against people who, who are going to go on to European and world level, and he, he's fighting those guys, and he's a stepping stone sort of fight, and that's not without being disrespectful to him. That's saying he's gone in there with those fighters, knowing 
he's probably the underdog and you've got you've got to hold your hands up there to him because boxing there's a lot of people like that in boxing and they deserve all the credit they get like I said he could have hung about at domestic level and lower levels and probably won a lot more fights than what he has but he's tested himself and I think he's been a credit to the sport and it's very sad when somebody comes out and, and retires after a fight because you know you always think you've got one fight left in you don't you I think any proud boxer will, will say that so uh, so yeah wish him all the best in his retirement I think he's done some terrific fights you know I've watched him in particularly that David Price fight never let, let anybody down on the, on the television in front of the cameras and wish him all the best with his uh, future career in another heavyweight news Fabio Wardley on the same card got an explosive knockout victory over Richard Larty to announce himself on the heavyweight scene the question for you is Paul in the ring that night it should have been Lucas Brown he had to pull out of the fight with Wardley do you think Wardley could have done the same thing as he did to Larty to Lucas Brown possibly yeah, possibly. I think so. He looked very impressive to me. Lucas Brown isn't getting any younger, is he? But we, we we say that all the time about him. He comes back and you know he's had some tough defeats over the years, hasn't he? But he's very rugged and you know he's one of those people like Top Little who get in there and fight anybody. So yeah, I was impressed at the weekend and he probably could have done that to Lucas Brown as well. But we'll we'll see. I'm sure we'll see Brown back in the future uh, doing bigger and better things. And in the main event, Conor Ben defeated Sebastian Formella and. We In the preview last week, we said, you know, Formella has operated at a high level. He went the distance with Sean Porter. It could be a tough one for Conor Ben. But Ben ran riot, won it comfortably on points, and caught out Josh Kelly at the end. And before this fight, we, we may have said, you know, that Kelly would be a step too far for him. But after winning this one comfortably, maybe it's a fight he could win. Yeah, well, Josh Kelly's been probably one of the fighters of the last couple of years, hasn't he, really? You know, coming through and... He's got all the skills in the world, and you know, rightly so. His promoters and his team, they're, they're you know, know he belongs at world level. And I think, you know, Conor Ben, he sometimes it's in sport, you get people who come through and, and their the dads or their brothers or whatever were good at their, their particular sport. And you know, Conor Ben's got you know, a great boxing father in Nigel Ben, and sometimes they can overshadow you a bit. But I think Conor Ben's gone about it the right ways. He's not made loads of noise. He's just sort of crept up there slowly. Every time I've seen him, he's been fantastic. You know, his explosiveness, his, his fitness, he's, he's, he's brilliant. I mean, I've watched a few of his training sessions and he's, the stuff that he goes through, and he's, he's one of those. He's probably one of the best people to train with because he just works so hard. He's got tremendous fitness, tremendous engine. And um, I really think that fight at the weekend was a bit of a coming-of-age fight for him. I thought he was excellent in that. And, and he's showing there, you know, the doubters. That don't rate him. I think I think he's ready. I think he's ready to be progressed now because I think he's a real, real tough customer. And there's one last huge fight before Christmas and he's previewing. It was announced the other night. Canelo Alvarez, one of the biggest stars in the sport, will be taking on his sixth British opponent in Callum Smith. And could Smith be the man, the Brit, to finally beat Canelo? Well, he's got all the tools, hasn't he, Callum Smith? You know, his, his height, reach, advantage, six foot three in his Smith. And, you know, throughout his career, I and mean, if you watch his early career, the first sort of 10, 12 fights that he had, he was just head and shoulders with everybody he fought. You know, it was like men against boys. He's got a bit tougher for him. He's gone on. His, his last fight, I thought, was, was really tough against John Ryder. I mean, I, I still think John Ryder won that fight, but Callum Smith is, is, a, is a good prospect or has been a good prospect, and now he's he's fighting at that world level now, and, you know, it, it, people have made statements about him, his family, his brothers, he's the best he's the best super middleweight in the, in the world, and, you know, you, you'd find it hard to argue with that, And but this is now, this is the test, 
you're fighting somebody now who is who is a special fighter, and if he can knock Canelo off, I think then he started to build a legacy then. But it's going to be a tough one for him. But going off his last fight, if he fights like he did against John Ryder, he'll get beat. He needs to be really switched on for this one, and you know not to, not take anything lightly. You know, I'm sure he won't do because he's a terrific athlete. But I think Callum Smith can beat um, Alvarez. I really do. Well, Paul, it's been an absolutely terrific show as always. It was an absolute pleasure discussing everything in the world of rugby league, from Ian Watson going to Huddersfield and to previewing the grand final next week. We're all looking forward to Conor McGregor's return to the Octagon in January. In football, of course, Manchester United, Manchester City and Salford all have huge cup games and we can't wait to review them. And this week, the world is set for Mike Tyson versus Roy Jones and Daniel Dubois versus Joe Joyce. We'll catch you all this time next week.